Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. To enter the competitive realm of shot put, some of the strongest weight room benchmarks are required. But once you've achieved that base level of strength, something else must take over. Adam Nelson is a world-class shot putter and one strong dude, but even he will tell you that chasing numbers in the gym will only distract you from the specific task at hand. Nelson puts it best when he says that lifting is like a drug, the way it makes you feel, the instant gratification, but like any stimulant, you can become dependent on it. It's only after becoming injured benching that he was exposed to rehab that improved his athleticism tenfold. This week's guest is no stranger to struggle. Hear Adam discuss how each decision he made in his career was calculated with personal integrity at the top of the list, a rare quality in a culture steeped in performance-enhancing drugs. Hear his fascinating journey to the top of track and field and his forthcoming philosophy about what can taint the success and hard work. This is episode 185. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? Stop what you're doing and listen. Even if you're driving, stop now. It's Tex over in Texas. I love it. And you got Luke here in Southern California in a steamy 80-degree office. Uh, And we are giving you another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. I got an email today, Tex. Uh, Apparently, we shipped a shirt that fell apart on a guy. And uh, it's like the bottom seam, you know. He said he wore it twice, training it twice. Uh, Bottom seam tore up. And he's like, hey, man, can I get that returned? And, you know, I'm customer service for a shop. So I basically said no. Uh, cut it into a crop top and fucking go out there and bang some weights. And he's like, it's forward thinking like that that makes Power Athlete Radio the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Is there Keep a point here? No. I'm just using that phrase over and over. So hopefully it embeds uh, in people's brain and they start to believe it as much as we do. Sorry, what did you say again? Uh, we are the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. And Thank you, Adam, for the uh, interjection, getting us back on track. That's what our graphic guests are for. We're honored to have Adam Nelson here, uh, who embodies the, the, the attributes of a power athlete. He takes a heavy rock and throws it really fucking far and brings home medals to this country, America. So Adam is a, uh, a shot putter and has competed in the Olympics. And, uh, dude, we're, we're honored to have you on, man. Oh, I'm fired up to be on. Beautiful. Well, how about this? In case people are living under a rock, tell them about yourself. Tell them, you know, give us either the, the abbreviated, the abridged or unabridged, whatever you want, baby, because it's your show. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, you know, it's funny. I started throwing the shot put uh, when I was in eighth grade after getting cut from the baseball team. And uh, that was pretty, I didn't realize it was going to be such a big deal and have such a huge impact on my life. So, uh, but at that point, I just sort of embraced this thing that we know as power and strength sports. And uh, that career, that, that, that sort of ride has taken me for almost 30 years now. Uh, um, you know, I was that weird kid in eighth grade that worked out for two hours every single day. We did an upper, lower, upper, lower, upper split Monday, Monday through Friday. Um, we had absolutely no uh, – no, when I say we had no supervision, it's probably quite a little bit of an overstatement. We had no supervision of our weight room. We had a guy, a coach that was down the hall, just in case the music got too loud, he would come and say, hey, guys, turn the music down. Uh, but we were largely uh, left uh, to our own sort of devices, if you will, in this, in this room. And it was in that room that I really figured out who I was and 
well, you know, sort of developed a passion for strength sports. Now, I probably made every single mistake in the book when it comes to lifting um, at the time. But, you know, the goal wasn't to go get pretty. The goal was to go get strong. And uh, the only way we knew how to do that <clears throat> back in 1988 and 89 was to lift weights. Uh, we didn't have all that fancy equipment. In fact, I think, um, you know, we had a couple of homemade racks spot welded by some, some guy that worked in the machine shop or whatever. And, nice. Um, the bars were all bent and the weights were all rusty and the room smelled like freaking, you know, combination of rat shit and sweat. So <clears throat> it wasn't a clean place, but, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, it's where you got work done and, you know, at some point someone would introduce a new workout. Anyway, you know, you just, it just kind of evolves from there. And, and um, uh, I found myself going to college and having the opportunity to do, to do both football and, and track in college and wanted to do both and had the opportunity to train with a fantastic track coach who was amazing lifting, um, just wealth of knowledge, a guy named Carl Wallen. He sort of formally exposed me to this thing called programming, um, although we didn't get a chance to experience much of it because I was always working on a short season, coming off football, go right into the indoor season and then right into the outdoor season, stuff like that. Uh, just had an opportunity that this, this thing that we call strength and power sports has sort of taken me from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. And I didn't really have a whole lot of expectations for anything uh, other than I was trying to, you know, throw this ball a little bit farther and lift a little more weight. So I was fortunate. Uh, I was fortunate enough to hear you speak in May at Summer Strong, and you talked about that that moment that coaching uh, that provided direction. And you, there was this uh, this one thing that I recall that stuck out, and it was uh, like Dartmouth football. And you finished your football career, you finished your throwing career, but then there was a coach that said you had a chance, you had an mm -hmm. opportunity to continue to do this post college. So. I'd love to get into kind of uh, that a little bit because, I mean, that's a leap of faith. It's yeah. Like you get a job, but you wanted to continue the grind. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, man. It, it was a really interesting time in my life. I can't say that my parents always appreciated the decisions, but they supported them once they were made. Uh, so I was graduating from, from Dartmouth College, which is a pretty good school by, by most standards. And uh, most of my friends were going on into, to New York to be bankers and consultants and go on to med school and stuff like that. And my college track coach, a guy named Carl Wallen, had been telling me for years, he said, Adam, like you really have something special. Uh, you need to keep doing this. Like you need to keep doing this. And uh, he said it to me enough times that I finally heard it. And, and it was probably the right time for it too because, you know, school was coming to an end and I just <laughs> – you know, the notion of going to New York and working 100 hours a week at, uh, in a, at a cubicle and, you know, losing all my hair when I was, uh, it took a little while before I lost all my hair, but I uh, would have lost it quicker, I think. Um, but uh, that notion, you know, didn't really resonate with me. And so uh, when he started talking to me about it, I said, this could be really cool. And uh, he, he connected me with a coach out in California that was at Stanford. And, um, you know, the rest is sort of history. I just, I, I remember flying back uh, to Dartmouth to pack up my stuff and drive across country. I had $200 cash to my name. Funny side note is um, I, it took me three and a half days to drive from New Hampshire to, uh, to the Bay area. And I was driving about 17 hours a day. Um, and the last day I pulled into uh, 
to, I, I made it to Reno and I just couldn't go any farther. And I'd never been to a casino before. Um, I know that sounds kind of weird today. Like people are like, oh, we go to casinos all the time. There's one around the corner, whatever. Um, so uh, I'm pulling into, uh, there were no, I couldn't find a good hotel that wasn't part of a, a casino. So I pulled into the last casino on the way out of Reno called Boomtown and um, had $200 cash to my name at the time and uh, made it up to my room checked in all that other stuff came back down to see if I could find some dinner and as I'm walking by I'll try this game called blackjack I've seen it all over I played you know played some poker with some friends and things like that back then but hadn't really played in a casino in like five minutes lost down on my last five dollars I was like oh man this is not good so what do you do in that moment well I push all in I have five dollars left and then I go on this run this heater for like the next two and a half hours and end up winning fifteen hundred dollars uh, and, uh, paying for my first summer in, uh, in, in the Bay area. So it covered all my, my expenses. Uh, but I did live in a closet underneath the stairs for $200 a month. So <laughs> um, it was in a it was in a house of, with 11 other track athletes that were all trying to make the 2000 Olympics. So, but, uh, I couldn't have done it had I not taken that leap of faith, that first leap of faith, and then maybe another one in, uh, at Boomtown there. <laughs> Funded by blackjack, man, going on a heater. Nothing exactly. better than that. Exactly. And it probably left me with uh, unrealistic uh, expectations every time I go to a casino now. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it ruins it. I've been on like one heater in the past seven years and everything else. I've, you know, paid back fucking 10 times. <laughs> There's a reason why this building is so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, just living 10 track athletes to one house, you're living underneath the stairs. That takes a dedication. That takes a motivation. Uh, so, I mean, where did that motivation come from? Was it all intrinsic? Did you keep in, in touch with uh, Carl, your coach? Uh, what was that? Because, I mean, motivation, that's, it, de it depletes very quickly. And uh, what continued to kind of fuel that fire for you? Because, I mean, it, sleeping underneath stairs, it doesn't sound very comforting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things where misery loves comfort or company and I was living with 10 other guys at the time. So, you know, people were all doubled up in rooms and, and whatnot, and they were all making sacrifices. So it didn't seem like it was anything like abnormal or, or unusual to me. I mean, my college buddies were all doing their thing and making, you know, making good money and, and advancing their, their life careers, so to speak. But uh, I just, to me, like the chance of making the Olympic team and representing my country and, uh, and hopefully winning a medal uh, meant, meant more to me. And I, I realized that, this, that when I made that decision, I said, I'm going to do this for three years. Um, I'm not going to give up. This is, I'm, I know I'm going to face a lot of obstacles between here and there, and I don't know what those obstacles are, but I'm not going to fear the unknown. I'm going to walk into it and say, this is my mission, this is my direction, and I'm going to walk right through that blackness until I come out the other side. And, uh, you know, I can't say it was always easy. I, I, Definitely shot myself in the foot more on more than one occasion. I had injuries. I had, you know, stupid 23-year-old, 22-year-old mistakes that, that could have cost me more. So glad that they didn't have cell phone videos back then. Um, but, <laughs> You're not the first one to say that in, in this crew, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to remember that most of our, most of our brethren in, uh, in the world of strength and conditioning are, are pretty much borderline outlaws most of the time. So, um, I don't know if I was an outlaw, but uh, I certainly made my share of mistakes uh, that are that are now well, well behind me. They can't resurface on any uh, <laughs> Google moment there. So, 
Did, did anyone else in the house falter? Did they, they quit? Did they give up up? Did that help motivate you? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, it was, so this, 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 this house that I, I stayed in was actually called, they nicknamed it the stable because it was where all these, these track athletes, those Olympic hopefuls would kind of go and stay when they were in California in that area. There was a big running group called the farm team that trained out of Stanford. Uh, and they had some pretty good success. Um, but, uh, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole house, the whole thing was, it was turnover, turnover, turnover. You'd see people, oh, this is the peak of the internet bubble, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. And so there are all these other opportunities and that are being thrown at you. And you take a job as a part-time job with some internet company and they, all of a sudden they say, Hey, uh, we're about to go public and we like you and we want to hire you. And here's 2000 shares. And by the way, tomorrow, those are going to be worth 60 bucks a piece. Um, you know, people made decisions uh, based off the short-term gains. And for me, uh, you know, I, I said, good luck to you. I mean, they weren't, most of those guys were at a, at a level where they were decent nationally, but they, they weren't really ranked um, globally. I kind of had the exact opposite. Uh, so I was actually, for any other country, I would have been number one or number two uh, in, the, in, 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 their, in their order. Uh, at least as a shop putter, but in the U.S. I was, you know, number six or seven. Um, so I knew that if I if I could get to trials and and do well there, that I would do well at the Olympics. A lot of those other guys were not in that situation, so they had a different decision to make. But once I made the decision, and this is pretty much how I am, like once I make a decision to do something, and there's a there's a long term commitment to it. I'm not saying that I, I'm unwavering. Like there's definitely a time where you doubt yourself, and there's definitely a time when you may have to say this isn't the direction that I'm going to go. Um, but you go into it with the full, you know, you go into it not looking for a half win or a half victory. You're looking for the full thing. If you ask me in 1998 whether or not I thought I was going to make the Olympic team, I would have told you I'm not living under a damn set of stairs in a freaking closet because I hope to finish second, you know, or third or not make the team or just want to make trials. I'm going to tell you point blank that I'm here to, to make the damn team. And uh, I felt that way throughout the whole time. Like, um, you know, at some level, like, all my peers and friends that didn't make that choice that chose to go a more conventional ride out, right out to college. It was, it was me against the world too. Like you find motivation from everything. So people say, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, you'll see in three years, you'll see. Well, the, the odds of you doing that aren't that great. Well, their odds of you doing it aren't that great, but I'm doing it right now. Um, so all these, there's so many people that see what you do. And if you, especially if you, if you have the courage to dream big and bet the ranch on things, there's so many people that are going to look at you with doubt and they're going to say, no, you can't do that. People love to project their own insecurities and their own inabilities on other people all the time. Because if you were, if you were to succeed, you make them look like an ass. Um, and that's just the way I saw it. So when people said, oh, you can't do that, uh, I'd say, no, you, you can't do that. I'm doing it now. Uh, and, and so I, it would fuel me like, uh, when I, whenever I heard someone say you can't, it, it just empowered me to, to, to push harder. And, um, whenever I faced a challenge, like I think the biggest challenge that I faced, you know, physically, uh, was a pec tear in 99, uh, tore my, my, my right pec minor, uh, doing a last warm up set of bench. Um, and it was one of those situations where I found myself like, I was in between jobs at the time and 
didn't know about this thing called Cobra that you're supposed to pick up after you leave a job. Um, and so I didn't have insurance and it was a tough, really, really tough time uh, for me. And I went to see this first doctor, agreed to see me. He's a great doctor, one of the doctors for the 49ers. And he says, well, you've got pretty much two choices. You can have the surgery and just kiss the Olympics goodbye, or you could try rehab and maybe, maybe in three to six months, more like six months, uh, you'll be able to throw. Um, but he's like, I doubt it. You'll, you know, I doubt you'll be able to make it at that point. And to me, that was a no brainer. That was another all in situation. That was me, you know, with $5 left at Boomtown, you know, like I'm, I'm here, I'm committed to this. If I back out now, I've got nothing. There's no win. There's no, there's no, there's no win. You know, there's only a loss. Um, I rolled that boulder all the way to the top of the hill. And just before I made it to the top, I got hurt and the thing rolled all the way back down and I just let it go. No, that's not how, that's not how I am. I want to finish the task at hand. And if I fail, I'm going to fail miserably. I'm going to fail in a huge way, but I'm not going to accept that fail, but I'm not going to accept that failure uh, because uh, someone thinks that, uh, you know, just because of a circumstance that was beyond my control, if there's a way to work through that circumstance and, 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 I'm going to do it. And that's kind of how I was then. That's kind of how I am now to a certain extent too. Like, um, so I did. And, and the best thing, the thing was that injury was a blessing in disguise. I'd been focused so much on strength, like the way I did my strength training at the time, I was strong as crap, but it wasn't converting to great throws. And, um, and I just changed the way I got out of, I had to get out of the weight room because I couldn't stabilize. I couldn't hold anything with my upper body. Um, and so I started, you know, getting back to the basics, the fundamentals, running and jumping and, and, and coordination stuff. And people are like, well, what did you do differently? Well, I didn't lift. I, 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 I did rehab for four months. I did it four days a week, five days a week for six hours every single time I did it. And uh, on top of that, I did some running and some jumping and it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Um, and when I came out of it, I was actually a better athlete. Uh, and ultimately as a, as a thrower, you know, we use the weight room as a tool to get better at throwing, not as a tool to get stronger. Um, there's a difference between the two, uh, and at different times in your life, you may have to focus on the strength over the, over the actual result. But for me at that point in my life, strength was not my limiting factor. And I didn't realize that until that, that element was taken away from me. Yeah, that's, you know, that's interesting to hear the, the, the anecdote, because this is something I don't know if we're necessary. We're, you know, I guess we're on our soapbox. We're beating the war drum of athleticism, right? That is uh, that is the vessel to performance, regardless of the discipline, regardless of if it's a uh, uh, track and field sport, racket sport, field sport, uh, fitness, sport of fitness, things like that. But that what we, what we what we firmly believe and firmly train for is to improve not only our athletes strength power and speed like that's that should be kind of a given but it's to maximize transferability of those performance traits through integrating that shit into athletic endeavors mm -hmm. right the ability to effortlessly and seamlessly move through space and complete tasks known both known and unknown right so it's just that like that elevates your abilities across the board, whether it's an, a fine-tuned skill or just kind of like a blunt force skill, like running, you know, slamming your head with a helmet on through an opponent, you know, mm -hmm. the more athletic version of yourself will be a higher performer, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's, uh, it's hard. Uh, the, the, the biggest challenge I think that most athletes face and, and coaches too, is the weight room is, is, 
it's it's got the greatest feedback loop of all. Like it's 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 you, you know that if you do work, uh, you're going to see results. Period. Uh, if you don't do work, you're not going to get the results you want. Um, but those results, uh, whether good or bad, don't always translate to better or worse performances. Uh, and the less that your event looks like the you know a bench squat, deadlift, snatch, jerk, whatever the lifts are that you value. Uh, or base your training off of, the less important uh, or the less correlation they're going to have, lower correlation they're going to have to the the to your to your actual performance, what you're training for, and that's the real trick, you know, particularly with field and court sports and uh, the team sports. That's the biggest. That's the biggest issue is people focus well focus on like how much they lift. Well, none of that really matters if you can't go out and play the damn game. Um, and and so you know the weight room is is great it's it's it gives you instant gratification and feedback and it's a great thing for your confidence and stuff uh but it's also it's 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 an addiction it's a, it's a um it's like a, it's a, it's a drug in and of itself um and at some point too much of that drug has not the same it doesn't have the desired effects anymore and and so you have to constantly walk that, that line and, and so, you, you know, if you're a football player and you want to get a big bench or whatever, that's great. But is it really going to help you be a better football player? Maybe if it makes you mentally stronger, okay. But, I mean, I love the bench. I love the squat. I love the deadlift. I love all of them. I love the Olympic lifts. They're fantastic. I love strongman exercises. They're all great. But I'm not training to be a great powerlifter. I'm not training to be a great Olympic lifter. I'm not trained to be a strongman. I was trained to be a shot putter. And there are minimum thresholds of strength that are probably necessary to throw the shot put a certain distance. Um, and sort of the benchmark distance is probably, uh, you know, 70 feet or 71 feet now. I, these guys are throwing so far, it's probably higher than 70 feet now. But um, the strength levels don't change to throw a world record uh, versus just 70 feet. It's a technical, it's a, it's a transferability. And that's, um, that's different for everybody. Um, you know, this has been a real hot topic over the last five or six or 10 years. Um, Bonder, when Bondarchuk kind of came to Canada and got out of the, got out of Russia and started talking and working with athletes that weren't Russians. Um, I think a lot of people opened their eyes to the specificity of training and, and what that actually does. But I, 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 I this is all anecdotal. Like I haven't worked with the thousands and, and done the research on thousands of athletes like Bondarchuk has done. Like that's the thing about it. Um, but I can tell you that there is no one right way to train uh, and that you can produce world-class results predictably uh, with conventional lifts. Um, but you have to put time in on both sides. You've got to learn the technique and you've got to learn the training and you have to understand that there's going to be a time where you have to focus more on the transfer of that strength into the actual event. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a, at that point, there's a little bit of an art, art and science to it, uh, and, and it's going to differ based off each individual. So um, I don't know really where, where I'm going with that whole conversation. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll steer you back. Um, so, I mean, this is – we share the same sentiments, and I know this is probably why Tex wanted to get you on here. But now, anecdotally, I guess, with your, your life cycle – I like to use that term, life cycle. Um, when did you figure this out? When did you figure out, you know, at one point you had just like all of us, you know, uh, believe that a bigger bench is going to make me a better baller, you know, type yeah. deal. But, uh, you know, you have a, you have a, a, 
a different track than me, clearly, because I peaked in high school. I'm a state champion, but that's all I got. I mean, you've done much, much bigger things. Uh, Texas, a shared, shared experience between us. I was a state champion. Too. Oh, man. <laughs> Tell me about your state championship. <laughs> what did you, what, how, oh, you didn't? You were on the, the worst team in Katy, Texas? Was that Katy, Texas history? Is that uh, what it was? Don't, don't worry about that. But uh, I got 60 D3 games underneath my belt that matter. <laughs> All that matters. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, okay, bringing it back in though. Uh, tell me, like, uh, at what point did you did you have that epiphany, or did you have a mentor that that kept you fresh of mind to to realize that hey, listen, training is assumed, training is implied. It's like breathing. It's like drinking water. You need to hit these lifts. You need to hit the you know move some iron. But at the end of the day, it's just a vessel to performance. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there. I mean, I would say um, you know, in hindsight, it was when I got hurt in '99 that I realized that um, I didn't always throw well when I was at my strongest. Um, and, I, but I think more than anything, I realized how little or how, you know, what this gap is between my perceived uh, need for strength or whatever, whatever that perceived that minimum threshold or threshold of, of strength necessary to throw far as and where it actually is. And, um, and I started realizing that in 99 or 2000, 2001, um, Sometime during that time, I started transitioning over. But my, the way I trained, though, I never really trained for, you know, to hit maximum strength numbers. And I know this sounds crazy, uh, but I, I think, you know, in a 30-year career of lifting, uh, you know, aside from when I basically maxed every time I went in the weight room when I was, you know, in 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, um, you know, outside of that, I probably did – I had to do a max for football – and that was the only time I ever maxed, ever. And, uh, and everything else in my training was not based off maxes. So I always based things off of like specific rep ranges and said, okay, um, I'm going to work. So if I had like a set of five or something like that, or a set of five, it was like, you know, a set of five to seven or a set of six to eight or whatever. And I'd always shoot for the high end of the rep range. And if I hit the high end of the rep range, I'd add weight. Really simple. Um, didn't use any fancy periodization charts, didn't use any fancy percentages or worry about this, didn't know what the damn names were for the different periods, like, oh, general prep, what's that? I don't know. Everything's general prep to me because we're generally preparing for life every day, right? Um, you know, I think, anyway, I, you know, for me, I just, I, I did it a lot more organically and I didn't really worry about the, the weight numbers. Now, my numbers were pretty solid, like even in high school, like, um, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but um, you know, as a eighth grader, I, you know, we always bench was the only thing we really tested in until my senior year in high school. Um, we did the 40 and some things like that too. But I mean, for the most part, it was bench, um, was what we had the wall for, you know, that was, that was the way to leaderboard there. So, you know, I had goals, like I wanted to do 225 and then 275 and then 315 and 405 and, uh, whatnot. And I hit every one of those goals a year and a half or so early. I did 225 as an eighth grader, and I benched, uh, I think, the beginning of my eighth, ninth grade year. I did, like, 275 or 305 or something like that. And anyway, by the time it was the beginning of my senior year, I did 435. And I didn't know what – I didn't max all the time at that point. I just did what I thought felt good in the weight room, and then I didn't, you know, didn't abide by any of these rules, like don't go up more than 10% each week or anything like that. I just went whatever felt – if it felt good, I would go heavy. If it didn't feel good, I wouldn't go as heavy. And uh, my college coach was great. So he started, you know, working. He was a five-by-five kind of guy. Um, and uh, But definitely spent a lot more time um, on 
kind of like building towards a, a peak strength and then coming down off that strength about four or five weeks before a major competition. And, you know, I told this story at Summer Strong, like we started off by doing like this, um, it was supposed to be, um, gosh, how did he set it up? I'm trying to remember. So he set it up so that we were going to work up to, uh, uh, basically work up to a heavy set. Um, it didn't matter. It wasn't a heavy single. It was a heavy set of five or heavy three or whatever. Um, and so leading up to that, I'd done 615 for five, uh, week one, week two, I did 635 for five and I was in week three or week four. And he's like, okay, we're going to do as many reps as possible. This whole plus set idea that, you know, Windler and a few others and juggernaut, those guys have, have popularized. And, and, um, so I said, okay. And we had 665 on the bar and, and, um, you know, I had a belt and wraps and I'll just be honest, like if I could lift something one time, I could lift it five times. I always have been, I was always that way when I was younger. I don't, I'm not that way now. I've trained myself out of that. Um, but, um, you know, I hit, hit the first five and he goes, two more, two more. And so I hit two more and the blood vessels in my eyes are starting to pop. And I'm like going crazy, you know, like just screaming. My whole team comes in, they're all yelling and screaming. And we're in this room, this room's no bigger than my office really like and I've got this ramshackle of a rack that I'm lifting in like when I, I told this at some I'm like no joke seriously man this was a trifold rack there were there, there was a steel sort of frame and then on hinges you had these two arms that kind of came out and that's what I was lifting out of and it was one of those ones that had three different levels so trifold tri-level so the top level you kind of walked in and sat down onto and then you could back out whatever theoretically I guess if you crash you going to the safety bars, but, um, whatever. And, and so I hit seven reps and I'm going, I'm going, he goes three more, three more. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I squat down, I go again, I hit three more and I get 10 reps and I'm just, he's, 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 I think at that point we're all kind of stupid. Like, Oh my God, what the hell just happened? And he goes two more. And I'm like, you know, my kids are in the next room. So I can't really, you know, project too loud here. They're going to think something's wrong. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, for, for the audience that was an f u that was a screen he was screaming f u at the coach yeah and uh and so when i, I share that story only because like i never tried to lift heavy weights the heavy weights just came to me when i did things the right way and so i see people and they have these programs these programs are beautiful little you know excel spreadsheets and percentages and blah 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 well for most of us that don't train in a box, my 70% is going to vary. My 80% is going to vary. My 90% is going to vary based off what I did the day before. Um, and, and, and really what happened the day before, not even from a training perspective, but from a life perspective. And so you have these things and all of a sudden people are like, oh man, you're, you're falling behind. And there's this negative negativity. I can tell you that like I, if I felt bad, I would stop and I would shut that exercise down and skip it. And it used to drive my college coach crazy until he watched me train. He's like, you're doing this the right way. And then 10 years later, I had the opportunity to train with Charles Poliquin and he said it uh, in a different way. And he actually embraced this concept. He said, he said, uh, he said, Adam, he said, he said, when you reach technical failure in any lift, you're finished. And there's this notion that we're being hard or tough or, you know, manly if we sort of push through the pain. Pushing through pain is very different from when you're actually doing a performance-based program. 
Pushing through pain is for fitness junkies that are doing it at like 30% intensity level. That's a bunch of sissies over there. You can't push, like when you push through pain, when you are a power athlete and you're a strength athlete, if you're pushing through pain uh, and, or hitting technical failure and pushing beyond that, and you're not risking like coming at a serious risk of injury, then you're not training at a high enough intensity level. That's the bottom line. Like when I fail, it's catastrophic. Okay. When I fail, it's catastrophic because I'm pushing myself to the brink of where humans just aren't supposed to be able to do anything like at that point. And so that's like, and I don't necessarily, I mean, it's not that uh, making it a much bigger deal than it actually is, but Charles would say technical failure. He's like, I don't care if you miss the tempo. If you can't control it in the tempo that I've got programmed, you went too heavy too soon. You've already hit maximum unit recruitment for the day. You can shut it down. You will not lose an ounce uh, of, of strength because you've already stimulated the muscles that we're trying to stimulate the right way or overstimulated them. And you come back the next day and you're stronger. And that's what we're trying to do. You're not trying to hit big numbers. You're trying to get stronger. And there's a very big difference. Um, people are so focused on hitting big numbers rather than just, just getting stronger, strong strength comes, you know, it's the ultimate reward. Um, it, it, it's, it's the reward you get for long-term dedication and discipline over a long period of time. You know, uh, numbers come for those, to those people who chase it. You know, I want to get a 400 pound bench press. I want to get a 500 pound bench press. I want to get a 700 pound squat. I want to get a 500 pound clean, whatever the numbers is that you choose to, to pursue. You're starting, you're focusing on that number rather than the general strength qualities. And, um, there's a difference between the two. Uh, it may be semantic to some people, but it's very, it's, it's something that I think has kept me relatively injury free and high performing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, dude, spoken like a fucking world-class athlete and somebody who's uh, uh, battle hardened and earned the right to, to speak with authority. I'm curious, you know, do, do you find yourself in, I don't know, I don't want to use debate, but maybe discussion with uh, uh, maybe the general population who, who are training enthusiasts or even younger athletes who just, you know, they can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, and, and if you have a strategy or method to, to communicate this message to us, cause it, you know, for, for Tex and I, you know, I'm, I'll speak for Tex cause I always do, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's comforting to hear shit. That's, that's in, in common thread with everything that we preach, you know? So I'm just curious if you've, if you've had that experience and, and you know, how those discussions go for you. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately there are people, um, that are really set in their ways and, and I'll, I'll just, I mean, I'll, I'll say it like this, like. Um, if you're young enough uh, in your training age or in your actual age biologically, uh, it doesn't really matter how you train. I mean, you're learning the movements. You're going to get a neurological response. You're going to get a muscular response. Um, all you need is volume. You know, you're really just trying to get that volume under your belt. Once you achieve a certain volume um, after that, if you're training for performance, which is different from fitness, you have to start thinking a little bit more about how the individual body responds rather than, uh, you know, what, uh, what the science says, you know, the science, the science is awesome. It's a great guide. Uh, but it's the application of that science that, that really, uh, promotes and, and builds athletics or athletes. So what I say to people when, when they say, well, this kid needs to do this, this kid needs to do this. I mean, generally speaking, I know I'm not going to change their mind, 
Uh, and I don't like to play, you know, I know more, I don't like to play the card. Like I know more than you. Uh, uh, I just try to set up guardrails um, and say, okay, you don't want to listen to me because clearly I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, or you know more than I do, which is why you came to me for advice anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I'm going to set these guardrails and here's the deal. You stay in between these rails and you can do whatever you want. Now you will never be as good as you could be if you trusted me to lead you beyond, but otherwise you got to stay in here. So you've got to sort of adjust their, their expectations and their abilities downward. And if someone just wants to chase numbers, that's, you know, if they're, unless they're a power lifter, Olympic lifter, like I said, I mean, I wasn't a power lifter or Olympic lifter. Like I was training for a sport um, outside of those two. Those are great sports, by the way. Don't even mean to knock that, in that, that, that phrase, but, um, but uh, you know, I can tell people, I usually go back to the minimum thresholds of strength and say, look, if you want to be world-class, this is what's accepted as the minimum thresholds of strength. So in my event, which is definitely high on the transfer from weight room strength into, into the actual event, we've got some of the highest numbers necessary to, to be proficient in our, in our event at a world-class level. Um, you know, the general rule of thumb is 200 kilo bench, you know, 250 kilo ish squat, um, anywhere between a 160 to 180 clean, things like that. So what I tell people is like, okay, let's shoot for these minimum thresholds of strength and see where we're at at that point. Cause 99% of the people that you deal with don't even have the minimum thresholds of strength anyway to be world-class. Um, and so you can train them a different way and, and keep them within the guardrails and, and still produce some pretty good results. But it's just a, it's just a long-term conversation that you have to have with people. I mean, if you told me when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, that a 400 pound bench press wasn't going to make me a better football player, I would tell you you're full of crap. Um, so, I mean, so that's, and that reflected in my training. Like I was going after numbers in the only way I knew how, but I was, you know, it was, I just did it a little bit differently. So there's a lot of places we can go from here. I'd like to kind of go back to that motivation. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are that results based motivated. They want just that number and they, they, they don't see the forest through the trees like Luke was saying. And I'm, I'm really into this book right now. It's called drive by, by Dan Pink. And he compares the results oriented versus what uh, Adam, you've been talking about this whole podcast is process oriented. And so it breaks, it breaks the kind of uh, that process oriented into three different motivations, but it sounds like you've got a combination of all of them. Uh, first one's autonomy, the desire that uh, to direct your own life, whether that's time, technique, team, task. The second is a desire for mastery, desire to continually improve at something that matters. You look at tasks as a chance to push out your own comfort zones and allow them to stretch themselves and develop their skills and experience further. And the final is, is purpose. That desire to do things in service of something that's larger than yourself, whether that's, that's the Olympics, whether that's the team, the guys, I mean, you're training with, it sounds like that, that could almost bridge that gap between, you know, pulling people away from their results only my, mindset. Well, I mean, so in Olympic sports, we have this thing called the, the, the Olympic struggle, the, the journey. And it's something that I, I talk about a lot. I mean, I think every athlete at a high level goes through their own struggle, their own journey, if you will. Um, 
what I can tell you is that the difference between me and the guys that I train with has nothing to do with effort or ethic or desire or even for that matter ability to a certain extent. Um, some of the guys I trained with uh, over the last you know 20 years have been uh, some of the most remarkable athletes in the world. They worked harder in some ways than I ever did. Uh, they were more, more focused on whatever their goals were and, and, and they were very inspirational to me as a result. Um, what I can tell you is that no one has ever guaranteed a result. I don't care who you are, you know, I don't, I don't really care who you are. The, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, there's <laughs> Michigan should have whooped App State a few years ago. It was all but a guaranteed result, but App State won, you know, um, there's always a David and Goliath aspect. There's always an exception. So the only thing I know that I was guaranteed in this life was the struggle. And the athletes that I know that are great, the great athletes, they dominate that struggle. Everything that comes their way, whether it's a negative or a positive, they treat it, they own it, and they, take, they, they, just, they use it as, as motivation and, and, and a source for power. If you're one of those people who's always going to be a victim in life, then greatness isn't going to come your way. And greatness never comes anyway. Greatness is something that's earned. And it's earned on a daily basis. It's earned through, through, through embracing this struggle and taking an ownership of this struggle and never, ever letting the struggle dictate the terms to you. And, and that's, that's something that I think a lot of people don't fully understand. I remember having this conversation with these two throwers in 2002 or three. Uh, we were at a bar in Estonia after a track meet there. Sounds like a bad joke. Um, but um, they were young throwers and they said to me, well, I said, well, what are you guys thinking about doing? Um, you know, where are you, where are you going next? What's next door? What's, what's next for y'all? Well, we can't keep throwing. And I said, why not? And they said, um, well, uh, you know, we're not on scholarship anymore and uh, there's just no financial opportunities that support throwers and we don't have a sponsorship. And uh, they, didn't, they weren't even looking to me for advice. They were looking for me for empathy. And I just said, you guys are a bunch of pussies. Um, and I, I called them point blank. I said, look, guys, you're right. It's a good time for you to quit because you do not have the resolve. You do not have the mental toughness. You do not have whatever it is to be great. And you've clearly accepted that you will not be great, that you don't want to accept this challenge. The challenge, the rules don't change. And, and yeah, there's definitely some people who, who get a leg up on you. Um, you know, they, they get a better contract, they get a contract. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm tougher than any of these guys. I just wanted it more. Um, I, I, I was in a different scenario and I don't want to say that I, I, it was me against the world. I have a very supporting family. Um, my parents, every decision I made, they may not have agreed with it, but they, they supported it once it was made. And I couldn't have done anything without their support, both from an emotional standpoint and, and at times a financial standpoint. Um, that was the, uh, the gift that they were able to give me. Um, you know, but I'll say this, that uh, there are a lot of people that want to look to make excuses. And if you want an excuse, there's a thousand valid ones. They're real excuses. And there are real reasons for not doing something, but there's only one reason to do it. And, and in my, my event, it's because you love it. Um, you want to do it. There's no money. I mean, I 
fucking through the shop put for a living. Yeah, I, if I won world championships, I did okay. I did more than okay. I did great. Um, but if I didn't, it was feast or famine. Um, and uh, while I'm a gambling man uh, at, from time to time, I'm not stupid. And I know that in a, um, in a winner-take-all scenario, there's going to be times where I'm going to come up on the short end of the stick. And when you come up on the short end of the stick, you don't look around and assign blame. You take ownership of the, res- of the result. And you look back at the process and say, okay, how could I change this? How could I have made this better? Shit, I did that when I won, too. So it, it's the same thing for me. So going back to your original thing, like, uh, and, and sort of getting back on point here is, is um, you know, in life, you're not guaranteed a result. All you're guaranteed is the shit that happens to you every single day. And you can let that stuff dictate, you know, where you're going to be. You can be a victim to it. You can, whatever it is, or you can take ownership of it and say, this is the hand that I was dealt. I'm going to play it better than anybody else has ever played this hand. And when the time comes and I get a better hand, I'm going to keep playing it better and better and better and better. And I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow and I'm not going to take no for an answer. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many experts, freaking coaches, in 99, they told me I had no chance, no chance, no chance. Your, your technique is horrible. You'll never throw far that way. 97, 98, 99, all that. And the thing is, like, they hadn't seen my practices. They'd only seen a competition here or there. They didn't understand that I was really two or three years into doing this full time, um, you know, splitting a coming off football and, and, and coming in with injuries and having basically three months to train. It's like a high school athlete yet I was still competing with the guys at the world-class and national class level. Uh, and so they'd say, your technique sucks. Your technique sucks. But I was committed to it. And my coaches were committed to it. The ones that saw me and saw me train every day, they said, wow, there's some real potential here. Let's see where he can go with it. The very next year in 2000, when I, when I made my big you know, breakthrough, um, my overnight success, uh, those same coaches came to me and said, man, I've always loved your technique. That's crap. You're such a freaking fair weather, like just jump on the bandwagon and go shove something up your, anyway. Um, so, you know, I, I'm kind of all over here, all over the place here. I start, uh, I go off on a rift and just kind of go wherever it takes me. So um, the only thing I know that I've ever been guaranteed is just the struggle. And I love the struggle. If, I, if I'm not consumed and absorbed by the struggle, I'm bored. I'm, I'm going, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to me? Somebody's, something bad's about to happen. I'm not busy enough. I'm not working hard enough. Something's going on. So you just got to love that struggle. And if you love that struggle, it's going to open up other doors. If the, if, the, if the end goal doesn't happen, like, you know, I wanted to make the Olympic team. But if that didn't happen, I knew that by going in and jumping in headfirst in this struggle, that it was going to open up other doors one way or the other. Because so few people, so few people are willing to – to just throw it out there and put it all on the line uh, and say, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is where I'm going to go. And this is what I'm going to get it. All I know is that there are a few people in this world that are willing to say, this is my goal. This is what I'm prepared to do to get there. And this is how I'm going to get there. There are a lot of people out there that talk about all these things they want to do. I want to do this. I want to do that. Those are what we call hopefuls. Those are what we call hopefuls. I call those hopefuls. There's a ton of Olympic hopefuls out there. There's a lot of people that say, oh, I'm going to make the Olympic team in 2000, uh, 2020. Okay, show me. What are you going to do today about it? And so I sometimes talk about the difference between hope and faith. And, you know, 
I became a faithful when I moved out to California. Uh, and I took that, those first steps. Like hope is, faith is hope put into action, as they say. And, and, and I think that's, you have to have faith to deal with that struggle. So anyway, I've kind of been all over the place there. So maybe we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> but those, those two terms are great. Hopefuls versus faithfuls. It's amazing. Um, so I'd like to kind of stick, stick with the passion. So I know you spoke a little bit at Summer Strong about uh, uh, doping in sports, and then you were part of a documentary recently. So if um, you could kind of talk about, I guess, uh, your perspective from, you know, earning everything and uh, what you've seen gone on, and then I guess about the documentary. Yeah, and so this is a really interesting subject, doping in sports. And, you know, it seems like for a lot of people it's black and white, and for me, probably when I was younger, it was more black and white than it is today. Um, and that has nothing to do with that my opinions have necessarily changed on it. It has more to do with the exposure that I've had to, to other athletes who don't have the same sort of rules that uh, the Olympic sports um, abide to. And, and, um, so anyway, let me, let me back up. Um, I think that like a lot of people will say in a very gross generalization, drugs are bad and they work. And there's, there are definitely, you know, people that will tell you that this is the only way you can do this. Um, I had a conversation with my dad when I was 16 years old, I was training at a gym in Atlanta. Uh, and, um, I was, I remember I was doing incline press and I was, like I said, I was a pretty strong kid, and I think I had 225 on and I was doing it. And I struggled on my fourth or fifth rep and uh, some guy came over and said something to me and it was essentially a proposition for drugs. He said, well, I've got something that can help you get that. Uh, and I remember talking to my dad about it and um, my dad basically pulled me aside and said, son, if you do the things, if you take the path that it looks like you're going to take, whether it's football or track and field, uh, this is going to be a constant in your life. And I can tell you this, that if you make a decision to do drugs, I will disown you. And I love my dad. And I know exactly what he meant. He meant exactly what he said. He will disown me. And so at that moment, I promised my dad that I would never do drugs, um, performance-enhancing drugs. I may have smoked dope once or twice in my life. Um, but um, I'm not proud of it. Shit happens. But uh, it's been a while. Um, well, you, you know, like you said, you're running with all those outlaws, you know? Yeah. Those outlaw yeah. strength, you know, people in the iron game. <laughs> so I promised him that when I was 16 years old, and we had this frank discussion about it. And I just said, look, it's not worth it to me uh, to, one, risk my health, and two, risk my integrity um, to do this. And it was not something that I had to worry about uh, in my community in high school. It wasn't really an issue there and then in college i was kind of sheltered uh you know there's not a huge performance enhancing drug issue at dartmouth um you know it's just not where the the kids are uh but when i moved out to california i remember this is the first time that i'd actually been approached by it and i got a there was a guy named uh, greg trafalis who's a shot putter uh out there and he introduced me to this other guy uh, at a track meet and um, the guy says, oh, we're doing great things. You got to come over to our, our lab and we'll do our blood test and you'll do all those other things. and We'll get a great profile on you. And, you know, it didn't help that 
that Greg is now, I think, on a lifetime ban. He's actually a great guy. He just he didn't. He always. He's one of those guys that said you couldn't throw farther than twenty meters clean. Um, and I told him, no, you couldn't throw farther than twenty meters clean. He used to get mad at me for saying that. But um, but uh, he introduced me to this guy, and I can remember the name. Man, that guy was just really sketchy. Um, and it turned out that that was the guy who was the head of the Bay Area Lab Company, Balco. Um, so I never, and, and you know, had, had I not had those conversations with my dad when I was young, I don't know if I would have had the the moral compass to avoid people like that. And, you know, I, I think I've seen steroids three times or had those types of incidences three times in my 30 year career, but I didn't seek out people that, that had those kinds of, you know, relationships with, with drugs, if you will. So uh, I, I, I guess I just either actively avoided it or the people that I hung out with just didn't, I, I, I got lucky. Um, and uh, I can tell you this, like, to me, doping is, it's, um, it's like the, it's kind of like, uh, for a lot of these athletes, to me, it's kind of like uh, when you're in school and that really smart kid who has, is totally insecure decides they're going to cheat on a test, even though they've got 100 average. It's like, what the hell are you doing? Um, I just, I've always felt that uh, I was capable of doing much more. And so I took it as a personal challenge. And I can remember um, the website, uh, bodybuilding.com used to make these t-shirts. I actually bumped into the guys uh, not too long ago, uh, but they used to have this wet, this t-shirt that said, uh, no, I'm not on steroids, but thanks for asking. Um, it was a classic. It was a classic. I don't know why. They Perfect, man. Um, but uh you know, I prided myself on that stuff. And I remember when I first came in to the Olympic sport, like, okay, I had a five foot PR in one year and people are like, they're freaking out. Like, what's he on? What's he on? I'm like, man, I don't know why these people are saying this stuff because like I've been throwing this far in practice and, and just haven't been able to do it in a meet and, and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and then the worst was that they would say it behind your back and then come to you afterwards and, and say, Oh yeah, good job. And then you'd find out that they were just, you know, crapping on you behind you uh, when you weren't looking or when you weren't listening. And, and I can remember having conversations with people about that. I've never really cared, you know, for people's opinions about, you know, how I train or don't train. It doesn't really bother me. Um, but what I can't stand is people who are just two-faced and hypocritical. You know, they'll just, they'll sit there and say, oh, we love you. We love you. We love you. But then behind your back, they're, they're undermining and, and, and discrediting everything you've ever done. Um, and I took that really personally when I was younger. Um, I kind of grew out of that and just realized that's people's own insecurity. It's the same people that says you can't, you know, when you dream big and you bet the ranch and you accomplish some of those goals, uh, there, there's always a, a number of people out there who say you can't, you can't, you can't, and they're projecting their own insecurities out on you. So I, as I've gotten older, I've kind of adapted a different, uh, approach to it. So when people say you're on drugs, I say, thanks, man, that's a huge compliment because, um, clearly <laughs> I can do things that you don't think are possible. Um, and, uh, and it, it, and it's funny, like I've actually almost gotten in fights with people over that. Um, I was at a, a bar and <laughs> I go to a lot of bars apparently. Um, I was at a bar in Finland and, um, and, uh, 2004 or five. And, and I remember one of the guys uh, at the bar was a, was a weight class strong man. I don't know what weight, it was one of the lighter weight classes. 
And um, he was going, what do you eat? What do you eat? I said, oh, I'm not following you here. Um, and uh, he got so angry uh, with me. Uh, it took me a minute to understand that he was actually talking about drugs. And um, he, you know, basically just, I thought he was, honestly, I was, I was like, crap, this is going to be one of those nights where uh, I'm going to have to fight my way to the door. Um, and he was a big dude. But um, it didn't, you know, people always, when, when people see things, see other people doing things that they can't do, uh, particularly in sports, uh, the first the first instinct for a lot of these people is to say, what is this guy doing that I'm not doing? It's not, wow, that could just be an exceptional athlete or an exceptional person. Wow, they really could be that much better than I am. Is it possible? Um, and uh, so when it comes to doping in sports, like, one, I just don't agree with it. I think that you have to, like, it's we're not trying to figure out who's got the best doctors out there, you know? And that's really what dopers are. They're, they're a medical experiment. And um, it's disheartening to me that in some ways I feel like people have grown more um, accepting of, of doping in sports. Uh, you know, the good news is that the drug testing, I think, is actually closing the loop a little bit. They're closing that lag. That little, they're, they're, I think they're getting better with it. Um, and uh, certainly for my, you know, in my sport, um, it doesn't make sense financially. I'm not going to lie. There's, if you need any other reason, it doesn't make sense financially because the stuff that you would take, I think, as a shot putter, um, the, the shadow would be so dark and so long that uh, you're going to get caught. I mean, it's not rocket science on our side. Now, what these, some of these endurance athletes are taking, the, the stuff is a lot more um, challenging to detect to begin with, but um, maybe there's some gene doping that's coming down. Uh, who knows? But at, 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 unfortunately, I think that doping is always going to be – there's always going to be people that want to dope, that want to cheat, and they'll justify it as saying, you know, I'm just trying to see what the limits of human ability is. Well, don't you think it's also just it's, – it's a pairing – it's pairing the, the will and desire and passion to be the best, right? But – with an individual who would be willing to die for the cause, so to speak, you know what I mean? Much like yourself, but for, at an early point in their life, didn't get that small parody that allows them to be guided on that su subject. Right. Yeah. So, so imagine back, back, you know, you and your, your pop have that same discussion. He's like, yeah, fuck it. Try it out. Where would you be today? Who fucking knows? And I'm not, you know, not justifying it, but you know, you deal with a certain population that are striving for world-class performance and really willing to do anything. When you throw that, that opportunity in the mix, it, it really doesn't surprise me that people jump, you know? And uh, you know, one thing, just uh, to go ahead, just a little step further. And, you know, John, John, who's not here, he played 10 years in the NFL and he talks to us at nauseam about some of this stuff. And, and uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It, you know, one of the things he says, he's like, uh, text, maybe help me out here. Cause I'm going to probably fucking butcher it. But he's like, all I've seen steroids do is make shitty players, stronger, shitty players. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, there, there's a little more to it between the ears. Uh, you know, whether it's, it, you know, you get to a highly technical sport, like you were saying, like, listen, it's going to allow you to recover. It's going to allow you to pack 
second training probably gets you bigger, stronger, faster, powerful, right? But there's an element to the what we talked about earlier, 20, 30 minutes ago about uh, you know, connecting the wires between what you're doing in the weight room and then your ability to execute. So I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, no, it's totally true. I'll, I'll pass the baton to you, man. And you, you know, let me know your thoughts. No, I, I admit, Paul, I agree. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I've all, I, I, I've all, I've never believed that steroids or more strength um, would make a good athlete. Great. Um, I think it can make great athletes pretty remarkable. Uh, but you got to have that gen- genetic sort of disposition um, makeup uh, to begin with. I think that the difference, you know, particularly in field and court sports where the disciplines are a little bit more organic and not quite so rigid, uh, but in more form-based sports like throwing the shot put and, 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 and Olympic lifting and uh, powerlifting and such, um, you know, we look a lot more like the, the, the basic movements, um, that we train in the weight room. Uh, so there's probably a higher transfer to performance there. Um, you know, let alone like, I mean, the, you know, when it comes to, especially like uh, specificity, so the concept of specificity and how it's actually applied in, in throwing in the throwing world is to basically take the motion of throwing and throw thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of reps. Um, I've, my, my experience and exposure to specificity is very limited, uh, in, in its pure form, but I know it would break me. Okay. Cause my body, just the way I throw and, and the way that the training is, I, I was the exact opposite on the spectrum as far as like volume throwing versus, um, versus everything else. So I spent a lot more time in a general preparation period and and would usually only throw three or four days a week for uh really i'd take probably eight to 12 full throws in a session um and i tell people that that's the exact opposite of the spectrum than someone who practices specificity you know they'll go out and they'll take you know 100 throws or 50 throws in a session and then their lifting will be more or less another throwing session and get another thousand reps in that way uh, and I, I get the, the argument behind it. I think it's, you know, pretty awesome. Um, but if you're doing steroids and you're actually able to do that, I, I think you will probably see a better transfer, uh, probably much better than whatever I got out of the weight room into the actual throwing uh, events. Um, I don't think just getting stronger in the weight room is going to make you a better thrower. I don't think that just getting stronger in the weight room is going to make you a better football player. Does it hurt? Probably not. Um, but, but you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I look around and I know that there were athletes that were cheating when I was, you know, certainly in my prime and, uh, I'm sure there's still athletes that are cheating now. I just, I don't think it's as prevalent as it used to be. Um, but, um, none of them could beat me and that's, I never felt like they were throwing distances that I couldn't throw. Right. Um, and maybe things would have changed had I felt like everybody who was beating me was on drugs. You know, the irony is that the guy that, you know, beats me in the 2004 Olympics ends up testing positive um, eight years later and, and I actually win the gold medal there. But even still, I, in every scenario from 2000 to 2007, I was second or better at every major championship. Um, and, um, you know, continue to have world-leading marks. 
um, well into my thirties. Like I just, I think so many people like that, the, the difference between, I guess I like it. I put it like this too. Like when people make the decision to take drugs, they're looking for a shortcut. And it may expedite yeah, the path to the top. It may, uh, it may actually, you know, end up in, in, and then pushing it too fast on any one day and, and having a catastrophic injury. I've seen that. Right. Um, but uh, I've always felt like if you do this the right way and you take the time uh, and you've got the, the, the raw genetic material to, to, to do it, like, you know, I was never going to be a basketball player. I'm six feet tall. Okay. And, and I'm a good jumper, but I can't shoot for a damn. <laughs> can't shoot to save my life. Um, but I was never going to be a basketball player. Okay. My eighth grade baseball coach told me I was never going to be a great baseball player. Point blank. He said, you're going to suck. Um, and that's why I quit baseball or why I actually didn't get the opportunity to play baseball. I went up for track after that. Um, so, you know, if you take the long-term approach and you do everything, right, I think you can put the building blocks in place so that you can have this really strong foundation and, and really accomplish some pretty high highs. Um, but at the end, I think there also, you, at some level, you also have to have a dose of reality and understand that there are people that are just better than you. Uh, I referenced Christian Cantwell earlier. Christian um, is six foot four or 350 pounds, and he is probably the only person I've ever seen who has a natural bench press of 700 pounds. Um, massively strong guy. If he ever learned how to throw right, he would kill everybody. And he was a great thrower, is a great thrower, world champion. Um, but I look at his physical abilities and his size and his, and his, and, and his strength, and I say, that's a guy who should be breaking the world record every single time he touches the ball. Like it shouldn't even be a, it, it should just be up. Oh, that was 78 feet. No problem. Um, you know, and I look at some of these other guys and think the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just not the case. So strength is not always everything it's cracked up to be. Um, so, but it is totally. <laughs> yeah. The strongest guy in the weight room. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah totally. To radio. <laughs> we all love getting under a heavy bar. Yeah. This, you know, this, text before you go doesn't surprise me, Adam. That like uh, you know, just going back to, I, I kind of relate to you where it's like where there is no grind and there is no struggle. It's really hard to get engaged, whether whether that's on the physical side, even with business. You know, for me personally, I, I think we share the same sentiments. Where it's like, you know, sometimes John will hit me up. He's like, dude, we got to fucking something just came up it's going to be like a, a fucking 30 hour work day and i'm like oh, let's go you know let's get some coffee and let's do this mm -hmm. um but it doesn't surprise me to it that like a guy like you would take such a firm stance on the shortcut concept because it's like no motherfucker like strap yourself in and let's go and let's grind because uh if you do it right and you have the right guidance and you can put in the work and the work effort mm -hmm. like the, the payoff is going to be so much sweeter when you do it, you know, it, like you said, inbounds type, type of deal. And it's just, uh, and I'm just kind of, kind of pontificating tax. I don't know if well, you want to jump on that or go. That's right in line with my next comment is something we talk about a lot and that's pride versus ego. It's okay to have kind of a pride, a swagger because you understand the investment that you're putting forth towards your goal versus an ego where you're going to let the guy who's, you know, a few more pounds stronger than you or throwing a couple more inches farther than you get underneath your skin and look for that shortcut. So 
it's uh, it's you can hear kind of the, the passion and the pride in uh, in your process and your grind. And I mean, just out out in the world of strength and conditioning, we run into a lot of the opposite, the ego, the shortcuts. And before the uh, podcast, we were talking about there are no shortcuts in training. It's the fundamentals and you never lose those. Um, maybe I'm pontificating now, Luke, you got me just fucking storytelling here. Um, but let's it's, it's riveting text. I mean, you're doing great. Just keep, keep going. I think, let me wake Adam up. Adam, wake up buddy. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the documentary, you're going down to Austin tomorrow to come uh, tell us how, what's the title? How do we watch it? And kind of what, a what part are you playing down there? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it, the, the documentary is called Doped, and it was put together by a guy named Andrew Moscato, who really wanted to sort of delve into uh, really the impact of, of doping in sport and how they're trying to uh, detect it and whether or not uh, the anti-doping agencies are doing a good job. Um, it's been out there for a while. Uh, you can probably find it online uh, someplace. Uh, it's been aired a couple of times already on TV. Uh, but they're just doing an air uh, showing uh, at the University of Texas tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, it's, I think Thursday night at seven. Some I'll, I'll, I can find the details for you. But um, but uh, they're doing a panel to sort of uh, with a bunch of I guess experts from different sides, a couple of journalists, a couple of scientists, and myself. Uh, we'll get together and and kind of talk about doping in our and our perception of doping in the sport um, and our experiences. I mean, my, my experiences with doping in the sport have been, you know, it's, it's actually been horrible to be quite honest. Like, and uh, you know, I started, I started training as an Olympic athlete to make an Olympic team and hopefully win a gold medal. And um, I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about the fame. I didn't care about any of that other stuff because to me at that time, that's not what the Olympics was about. Uh, now it had, it was a career and it, it was my profession for a long time. Uh, so there is a balance, a fine line between the two, but ultimately the things that I lost were the things that I started doing the whole sport for. Um, I never had the memory of, of hearing my national anthem played at an Olympic games and getting that gold medal in front of my family and my friends and representing my country like that. And I know that sounds, a lot of people think that, oh, well, that's just a little bit cheesy and this and that, but that's why I started doing the damn thing in the first place. Um, I didn't start throwing the shot put because, um, I mean, I guess at some level I enjoyed the personal challenge, but I, I started throwing the shot put because it's part of track and field, which is an Olympic sport. And I thought, well, hey, you know, at some point maybe this will be something that will take me to another level. Um, although I didn't really start thinking that until after college, but um but, you know, that's why I made the move to California. That's why I was willing to sacrifice um, my career, uh, professional career outside of sports. Uh, and it's given me so much, but it's taken me so much, taken away so much. Uh, from a financial standpoint, it cost me, it did cost me a lot of money. We don't make a lot of money as shot putters. And the only time you do actually have a chance to make money is in that moment when everybody's watching and you win the day. And uh, that happens once every four years. Uh, and I was never able to get back into that situation where I was healthy again. Uh, eight years later, I get a phone call saying, oh, you know, uh, we did a test of 100 samples, 100 athletes from the, from the Greek Olympics, and um, five of them tested positive, and it looks like one of them's a shot player. 
And that even wasn't, that wasn't even from an official uh, with the Olympic movement. That was from a reporter. Um, and then I get another call after the 2012 Olympics saying, hey, have you heard anything? And it's the same reporter. I said, no, have you? And she said, yeah, they're supposed to meet. The IOC is supposed to meet uh, to figure out if they're going to vacate the spots or re re like reorder. Um, and um, So, Adam, when, when she broke the news to you the first time, like, dude, what <laughs> – did you, did the phone disintegrate as you smashed it or, you know, what was the, what was the fucking, like, t talk me through it, man. Let me tell you something, man. Like I'm, you guys kind of get a little taste of it on this phone call or this, this podcast, but like, I get, I'm a very emotional guy when I start talking about things that I'm passionate about. And, and, um, and uh, certainly with throwing, it's meant so much to me in that particular, I mean, what you don't understand is that when I got second, uh, in 2004, at the moment, uh, the next eight years of my life changed. It changed my whole trajectory. Um, I'm not saying I would have retired from sport after 2004 had I won at the moment, but I lost my sponsor, which is not a big deal. I, it was a big deal. It was the only guaranteed income I could I, I could have. Uh, I won a world championship the next year without a sponsor. Continued to train without a sponsor for two years, um, two and a half years. Uh, you know, made some things that I did some things to try to draw attention to my event, and was labeled a uh, an outlaw, if you will, uh, someone who complains and um, you know doesn't really care about the whole sport, is only self-centered. And, and to that point, that's totally true. Like I was trying to draw attention to make myself relevant. I competed in a t-shirt that said, at least my mom loves me space for rent, you know, trying to draw attention, doing whatever I could to draw attention to the fact that like, Hey, I need some help here. And, uh, officials in the sport, you know, the, the, the big mucky mucks would say, Oh, we love what you're doing. We wish you could help you. Well, you're in a position to help me. Um, I never felt like I was entitled to anything. So you don't hear me complain about it, but, um, to know that I went through all that and I probably wasn't the best person, you know, I'm married to an amazing woman and she carried me through a lot of those times. And I can't say that I was always positive. And, um, you know, I don't think I was a bad person, but I certainly wasn't living up to my own standards at times uh, as I dealt with those, some of the demons that uh, I could usually channel in a positive way. And then when you hear that, you get that conversation, you have that, call and they say well look everything that you worked through for the last eight years of your life should have been different and the reason why it wasn't was because they failed not me they them those people the organizations that are supposed to protect me they're supposed to protect the integrity of my results they failed great i'll give you a pat on the back for sticking around and, and staying true for eight years that's awesome but that changed my life that day. And, and, and um, I think ultimately it's for the better. Uh, since that time, like it opened up all those old wounds, those, those old wounds of like, wow, um, you know, you don't have regrets, but you look back and you think, okay, what did I really lose out on? And that conversation is not a positive conversation at all. And when you're looking backwards, you're not looking forwards. And that's just not a good place for me to be. I've never been that kind of person. And it challenged me in a way that was very, very hard. Um, and, um, you know, it took me a year before I got my medal. I got my medal in a 
fucking food court at the Atlanta airport. Uh, I joke and say at least I got a side of fries with it. Um, Silver lining. What's that? Silver lining, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, You know, it, it to me, I mean, that was my, that's what my life's purpose was. And to have it uh, marginalized and disrespected in that manner, uh, maybe a real bitter person for a long time. And I'm pretty good at keeping my, those types of feelings uh, inside, but um, it was, uh, it was not an easy time. And then I was transitioning at the same time too. So I was transitioning out of sport, uh, which, is not always easy. And, you know, it's funny. I thought I had this whole transition thing all lined up. Like I, I'm, I consider myself a reasonably bright guy. I went to a great undergraduate school at Dartmouth. And then in 2006 enrolled at the uh, university of Virginia's Dartmouth school of business and graduated there in 2008. But I guess I, I you know, <laughs> I made choices that, that devalue um, those experiences, at least in the, the short term. Uh, because you continue to pursue things that have nothing to do with your academic experience. And um, all that sort of hit home at that moment. Um, So I was very angry. That's the short version. I was very, very angry. Um, I hated everybody. You know, I hated the IOC. I hated the Olympics. I hated USA track and field. I hated WADA. I hated USADA. All those people let me down. And um, for the first time in my life, I found myself feeling like I was owed something. And um, I don't think that's a healthy place. And uh, when I finally got over that, I I just said, look, this is who I am. This is where I'm going. And I suppose at some level, uh, I can be the gold medalist for the rest of my life. And uh, so I have to sort of hang my hat on that. And, but at the end of the day, like it, it really challenged who I was as a person. And um, to a lot of people, you know, outside of sports, they're like, ah, oh, it's just a, hey, you're a gold medalist. That's awesome. Uh, but medals don't really mean much to me, to be quite honest. Um, they validate the struggle. That's all they do. They're a physical representation of how well you conquered the struggle. And, um, I guess I, I feel like I got a medal for good behavior. Uh, I got a medal uh, because I did it the right way, and that's the value there. Uh, but it took me a long time to work through that. And uh, like I said, I'm lucky. I've got a great family who supported me, and I've got a wife that kicked my ass when she needed to. And and um, anyway, it doesn't change the way I feel about the struggle. I still love it. I still love this little thing that we call strength and conditioning and power sports. And, and I still love the shop, but I still at some level love the Olympic movement, but I see it for, for, for what it really is. Uh, and, uh, but I still hope I can inspire people to do it the right way and, and let my demons uh, die where they need to die. Yeah. And you know, I think uh, just your involvement and for example, the documentary, and I'm sure that this uh, you being a very driven and passionate individual you can channel your energy and kind of the, I mean, the disappointing situation you were put into, you can channel, channel that to make, 
to clean this, clean this shit up, you know what I mean? And help and at least contribute to that. So in the long term, you know, not only are you gold medalist, but you, you know, you help push the movement into getting better testing into the Olympics and the Olympic committee and making sure that no one has to go through the shitty deck of cards that you were dealt uh, because some asshole decided to take a shortcut. Right. And, yeah. uh, and the people who were supposed to detect that didn't now right, wrong, you know, whether it was nefarious and uh, Clint, you know, clandestine cheating tactics or who knows, right? Or maybe it was just shitty technology. Like, uh, I think that, you know, first step is is getting this information out there. And it's, it sounds like that's what you guys are doing with the documentary. Yeah, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we've got to have an open dialogue about drugs and sport. And and it's like, I mean, honestly, it's no different than, than I feel like the, the country is going through right now. Like, uh, you have to have a conversation about things that, that you know, on either side could make someone look like or feel defensive. Um, you know, like uh, the, I come out and I say, look, I don't think you can do, like you don't need to do drugs to, to, to be a world-class athlete. And the people that do drugs are like, this guy's full of crap. You don't know what you're talking about. You blah, blah, blah. Well, actually I do know what I'm talking about. I've done it the right way. And I'm not saying I'm better than you, but I actually am because I'm not cheating. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I, can, I can help you learn and, and hopefully, but I can't do this unless we engage in dialogue. And I, I feel like the thing that's missing from, from the doping control or anti-doping movement right now is really engaging the athletes. And you brought up football uh, and, and John has a football background and the football players, NFL guys that I've talked to, um, you know, they know that there's a, there are some people that cheat. They know that some people are doing drugs um, in, in the league. But the guys that I've talked to have said, look, when we find out someone's doing stuff, we just shame them to just no. there's no end in the locker room. We're talking, you know, we're making fun of them in every single possible way you can possibly imagine. We're shaming them. We're shaming. So while we don't necessarily have the best drug testing, we've got a culture that really doesn't support it or allow for it, either by turning a blind eye or by actually, you know, supporting it. So, um, and that's where I think the Olympic sports have failed is, you know, we've, we've, as athletes and coaches, we've deferred all that responsibility to the testing agencies and have turned a blind eye to everything else. And, and they want that. They want us to have no input, to have no say. And, and that's got to change. Nice, man. That's some heavy shit. Tex, did you have anything else? <laughs> Well, we uh, we talked about two opportunities that you wanted to um, kind of present to the crowd, and this could be a way of letting them know of, hey, there's some good direction here. You're putting out a book, and then you got Legends of Strength. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, I got a bunch of stuff going on. I'm fired up more than anything about all this stuff. Like, uh, I'm starting to understand um, kind of how how great a tool this thing is called the internet. Um, it's better for I'm, I'm going to stop right there. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, I, uh, I, I, I'm working with a guy named Kevin McMahon. He's a two-time Olympic hammer thrower, and he's a great design guy. He's designed a couple logos for me in the past, and we got this idea for something called Legends of Strength, which is just basically a, a website that allows people to post um, their best you know, feats of strength of the week, whether it's in a training, training venue or and it doesn't really have to be anything specific. Like I, I, I just, I always say, it's like, look, what's, what's a great feat of strength? Like, is it the guy that 95 year old guy that goes out and runs a hundred meters and, you know, 
20 seconds or some guy who's, you know, pulling 700 pounds from the floor. Like that's all, both of them have their own merits. And so we're trying to create this, uh, this space where we can just sort of uh, allow people who love power and strength uh, to share in an open community. It's, I hope it, you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, but uh, I think it's a pretty cool concept right now. Um, and we're still working on that. There should be a, it's still in the beta phase right now. So the, the Legends of Strength site's not up in a, in, a, in a publicly digestible format yet, but hopefully it'll come out soon. And then um, I've got a book uh, that I've written, a workout book that uh, talks about my approach to training. It's an tr- approach that combines um, sort of my key influencers from my high school and college coaches to to guys like Charles Poliquin and Judd Logan and, um, and, and a bunch of other guys that probably are more, uh, well, better, a little better known in the throwing world. Um, but I'm really fired up about that. Uh, it's a three month training program. Uh, I've actually been working through it for the last like two or three months, not two and a half months now. And, uh, just to make sure that I like it a lot and it's based off all the kind of training that I would do in a general prep period. And I think it's going to be a great resource for, for power and strength athletes, uh, to just draw upon. I'm a huge fan of eccentric loading and eccentric training. And uh, I delve into that quite a bit, uh, in this workout, um, and, uh, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I'm feeling pretty good right now. Um, and then I've got this constant sort of passion project that I've been working on for a long time called strong at 40. I'm 41 now. And I feel like so many people in this uh, day and age are looking to be high performers uh, for the rest of their lives, you know, not just when the formal competitive opportunities stop, uh, but well into their forties and fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties. And I think a, a fundamental part of that is uh, staying strong in a smart way in the weight room. So uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a bunch of little projects that I'm working on and I'm, I'm pretty fired up about all of them. Well, that's good, man. If, I mean, uh, we're kind of coming up to that end point. If anyone wants to check it out, where do you, where do you want to point them? You got a social media platform. You want to send them to, to a website or what, which one? Yeah, right, right now I'd probably put them to the either like my Instagram, um, still working on my websites there, but the Instagram, which is Adam Nelson, 5376. I don't know why I did that. I, I didn't realize what it was <laughs> when I signed up for it. And there's <laughs> 5,375 um, other Adam Nelsons, right? <laughs> I guess so. Um, so uh, I've thought about changing it over. I think I could probably change it over to match my Twitter handle, which is Adam Mick Nelson. That's my Adam Mick Nelson uh, for Twitter. But those are the two best places I think right now. And I'm not really quite proud of what, what the website is right now. But the, um, when you get, when the websites are ready for for public digestion, you'll you'll uh, you'll you guys will be some of the first to know. Awesome, man. Well, hey, Adam, dude, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing the story. Uh, like I said before, man, you, you embody the power athlete mentality and, and the performance side of things. It's, it's awesome to be aligned with a guy like you. You know what I mean? Thanks, man. I love what you guys are doing here with the podcast. Keep it up. Oh, you got it, bro. No problem. It is, I don't know if you know this, it's the premier podcast <laughs> in strength and conditioning. So let me get this straight. This is the premier broadcast in strength and conditioning? No, podcast. podcast. I kind of like broadcast better. There you go. Premier podcast broadcast in strength and conditioning. I love it. <laughs> Ooh, the broadcast podcast. We should start that text. There you go. It's like the Wadcast podcast, but it's the broadcast podcast. So we can talk about literally anything we want. <laughs> That's what broadcast means? It, I'm broadcasting that fact right now. <laughs> All right, guys, let's, uh, let's wrap it up, man. Uh, thanks again. And Tex, I'll see you, uh, see you on the other side, bro. Safe travels. I know you're going to Sweden. Yep.
All right. Yeah, Adam, thank you. Thank you for taking the time, man. I, I know, um, know you got a lot going on, busy man, and it was awesome. I got a lot of notes. Got a lot of notes here. So <laughs> some doodling, but it's all good. All right, guys. Thanks so much, guys. All right. See you later, man. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you were blown away by Adam Nelson's mindset and training philosophy like I was, get to following him on Instagram at adamnelson5376 or Twitter at adammcnelson. And keep your eyes peeled for his Feats of Strength website. With Festivus just around the corner, I may just have to submit my own. And a very special shout out to anyone who attended the 2016 Power Athlete Symposium, particularly all of our amazing guest speakers. Minds were blown all weekend long. Until next time, bye!